How art thou, thou damson Chelovex? We missed you very dearly. Your humble narrators, Ace and David, began talking about the Clockwork Orange celebrating five decades of masterpiece in films unchained. We discussed how Alex was being a naughty young Malchick, playing with the rules, hurting his droogs, and got himself in prison. But now, oh brothers and sisters, take 97. We will video what happens when Alex going through the Ludovico treatment. Or is it a treatment? Well, we'll bring it all and end it there. With a bit of the old Ludwig van, it will be gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. Hello and welcome back to Tank 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. I'd just like to make a quick note to anyone who is tuning into this episode. You may notice that this title has suggested that this is a part two to something else. If you're a bit confused why I'm starting on part two, don't panic. I shall give you a quick explainer for you. This is part two of a two episode podcast collaboration special in aid of the 50th anniversary, so five decades, celebrating Stanley Kubrick's 1971 film, A Clockwork Orange. Part one of this discussion with my special guest today began on his podcast, Films Unchained. We discussed the beginnings of the film, the first half of the film. We split it into pre-Ludovico and post-Ludovico. And a few other bits in between, little discussion here and there. But part one of that is over on Films Unchained podcast. So please do check that out if you have not already listened to it. And anybody who has already done that, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part one. Here is to part two. So once again, welcome to Ace from Films Unchained. Thank you so much for joining me again, Ace, on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. And uh, yeah, to continue this ongoing discussion that we've created for 50 years of A Clockwork Orange. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much, David, for having me again in Take 97. I'm super excited to have part two in Take 97 for the Clockwork Orange, 50 years of ultraviolence, five decades of Alex DeLarge taking over Britain, and 50 years of Stanley Kubrick bringing the world. What is it like to have the pure intelligence of movie making? So I'm doing very well. How about you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thank you very much. And you know, you just summed it up perfectly. The right amount of grandiose, though, shall we say, for this occasion, it is the golden year. So anyone who already knows part one, like I just said, we discussed a little bit, of, you know, the making of it and little bits of the beginnings of the film and discussions of the themes and the ideas behind what was depicted on screen. Ace gives a little bit of a rundown between the differences between the book and the film and how disturbing each of them are in their own respects. Today's episode, we will continue breaking down and going into an in-depth analysis and just discussion, really, of the second half of the film, what we have termed as the post-Ludovico section of the film. So for anyone who doesn't know Clockwork Orange, this is a 1971 film by Stanley Kubrick based on the Anthony Burgess novel released in the 1960s. We have so far encountered Alex Delage, played by Malcolm McDowell, and his three droogs, Pete, Georgie, and Din, and they have undertook various acts of ultraviolence during the first half of the film and then Alex is caught in the act perpetrating one of the many acts of ultraviolence and he actually gets caught and sort of 
turned over by his droogs, as it were. His droogs betray him and he ends up in prison. And this is where we sort of left off from last time, where we got to see the violent streak in Alex Delarge and his character before his mind gets turned. Ace, I just want to turn to you now I've given that big load of speech and context for the listeners. Tell us a little bit about your feelings towards A Clockwork Orange, the second half of the film. Tell us a little bit about what you get from it and you know, just explain any little details you think will be beneficial to anyone who's interested in A Clockwork Orange. Sounds good and my pleasure. Well, David, the second part of A Clockwork Orange is actually a very unique aspect. And that's the reason we, we decided to divide the podcast episode into two. Because the first half was basically showing about, you know, the human corruption and Alex's side and how he enjoys ultraviolence and what he does when it comes to, you know, gang attack, home invasion, you name it. But in part two, the thing about this uh, episode is that because we're looking at Alex being a product of the government, he's basically trying to follow the rules he's just trying to you know like change his intention that is not basically himself so what i like about part two of the movie is that can we actually give alex a second chance in life or do we just treat him as he was before the ludovico technique that's what's special about this movie is that can we give someone a second chance so the ludovico technique do you want to just briefly sort of fill everybody in on what the ludovico technique actually does and what actually happens in the film so obviously guys if you haven't watched the clockwork orange spoilers ahead for all of this should have said that earlier as well but there will be spoilers so if you haven't watched it pause us now watch the film but ace take it away tell us a little bit about the ludovico process and what it does to alex just briefly Oh, wow. This is actually an honor. Thank you so much, David. That's all right. Uh, so basically, to anyone, so um, Alex being in prison, there's basically uh, a new technique proposed by the government called the Ludovico technique. And the way it's advertised is basically to give the prisoners a second chance by basically changing their intention to basically make them become better people. So Alex basically decides to go for that technique so he can like get out of prison as soon as possible. What people did not know is that the idea of the Ludovico technique is basically take something away from them that is precious to them and they take it into a negative thing for them so they can like follow the rules and abide them. For example, preventing the exercise of free will and anything that Alex enjoys. So in, in the movie, Alex is forced to watch scenes of violence on screen that are paired with negative physical simulation. Now that negative physical stimulation takes the form of nausea, feelings of terror, and, you know, like sometimes how he burps in the movie because he feels sick, mm. which are actually caused in the movie how before ever, before the technique, he ta basically takes pills. Mm. And basically these pills are given right before Alex watching these films during the technique. So when he's watching these movies, you know, like war, gang attack, and the, the depictions of rape, they put Beethoven. Now, mm. Alex loves Beethoven so much. Like throughout the movie, he enjoys putting Beethoven in the movie. Now, when you take something that is so precious to him and combine it with something negative, what happens in that technique is that whenever he listens to Beethoven, he will feel sick. He will feel, you know, like horrified because he will remember what he watched. So in other words, David, it's basically a Pavlovian therapy, especially classical conditioning. David, you've watched The Office, right? Uh, yes, yes, I have indeed. 
Okay, perfect. That make, makes it easier for us. But just to recap, when Jim pranks uh, Dwight, there's a specific prank where like whenever he closes a computer and does that shutdown noise, uh, Jim offers him, uh, offers Dwight basically mint. And he mm. does that multiple times and became like, you know, a classical conditioning, it becomes like a habit for him. So one time when Jim closes the computer, he didn't ask Dwight if he wants mint. Dwight out of nowhere, puts his hands out expecting to get mints. And that's what the Ludovico technique does is trying to make the idea of whenever Alex listens to Beethoven or whenever he tries to beat up someone, he will feel sick. But here's the thing, David, this is a last minute thing. What many did not know about this Ludovico technique is that they're trying to make people like chained with, with the government rules. Mm -hmm. They're trying to corrupt the society into following them no matter what. Anthony Burgess, the author of The Clockwork Orange, he says, when a man ceases to have free will, they are no longer a man. And he takes the title, A Clockwork Orange, as a metaphor of, for the idea of the free will and the Ludovico technique. That's mm. my take about it. And on the previous episode, I actually touched on the idea that without violence or darkness, anyone, doesn't matter whether it's Alex or any other character within the film or just any human character in any scenario, the idea that without the light and dark, like light and dark as a basic principle is it used in so many science fiction, fantasy-based adventures and stories and mythical legends and such. The light cannot exist without the dark. Darkness cannot take over because it has to coexist with light. You cannot get rid of one without the other existing at the same time. And this is the same case you touched on the point really of you lose that sense of humanity because humanity is all about that mixture of emotions you mix together the light the dark the ultra violence the ultra super safe if you were the really happy clappy going along with society going along with what you're being told kind of thing and other forms of human emotion the variations of it you can't be human without a little bit of darkness in you everyone has that darkness within them it just depends on how much or how often certain people show it. And for Alex, obviously, and his droogs, they show it through ultra-violent acts regularly at the midnight hour, as it were. And that is their sort of release, and they take enjoyment from that. Obviously, not everyone does take enjoyment from that, but that's the pure wickedness of the Ludovico technique, is it takes away what you once enjoyed. If this was another type of film where the government wanted you to, where they didn't want you to enjoy certain recreational activities that weren't even harmful like violent acts that would be the similar principle of in some cases actually you can relate back to a clockwork orange with like you just said the blessed ludwig <laughs> ludwig van, van beethoven you really get that sense of you know he loves beethoven and it's the one thing his one saving grace and it's been taken away from like i feel like alex we discussed about whether he was beyond redemption such and we'll touch on that a little bit later in this episode but i feel like he is not beyond redemption but because you know he does have redeeming qualities and like he appreciates fine art like beethoven and sees it as the highest form of art that someone can enjoy i don't know that sort of shows that the light is still within him, even though the majority of his life is led by the ultra violence. So linking in, you just brilliantly brought up this fact that taking away a person's individuality is what is at play here. And as we say, this part of the podcast special is all about government corruption rather than human corruption, pure individual based corruption of the mind and the mental state. We've got more of a 
structure going on with the government in the story in the story frame the narrative of this who are controlling alex and making him into a prototype for what they want the society to become yeah that actually sounds like that sums up everything about what we're talking about uh, about the clockwork orange like right now we're talking about the government corruption and how it basically destroys a society and takes away as you mentioned the individuality of a person but david i need to ask you like with alex intentionally like what we see throughout the movie he's basically um and not so peaceful friends but hmm. one would say so when someone takes away his individuality will that make those people who take it take it from him better people because they're trying to tone down the violence from alex or will that basically destroy the idea of freedom i would say it does a bit of both i think I hate to sound like I'm sitting on the fence, really, which yeah, I basically am in that making that statement. But I do think that taking away something that is so unique about someone, not saying that it's right or anything or you know anything like that, but I do think that taking away an aspect of someone's personality, it does take away, obviously, it takes away that individuality aspect of it. And you can understand from this story, the government's perspective of trying to maintain a peaceful and engaging society that aren't hell-bent on wanting to kill everybody and beat people up all the time. You can understand that side of things, but at the same time, it's the thing that is demonstrated in the film, especially in Stanley Kubrick's film, is that there's cleansing the society of evil then shall we say like just a blank blanket term of evil and the ultra violence but then there's going a step too far where they can't cope with violence at all and like you mentioned this is the whole scenario of alex basically being sick every time he comes into contact or experiences or tries to react with some form of violence like he has a moment where i think it's uh, like this i can't remember what his name is now but the guy when he comes home after being treated by the prison he comes home to his parents house and he's basically getting kicked out and at one point he raises his fist to sort of go for this lodger that has basically rented out alex's room and you yeah. get this yeah you, you you know he wants to punch him because he's mad that he's stolen his space and he's taken over what was once his and you get this sense of massive overwhelming strangeness because you think normally you know it's quite a human reaction to be mad about something that was once yours being taken away from you but he can't act on it in the way he usually would because he's been conditioned not to do so and i feel like whilst on one hand you get the intentions of the government trying to decrease the crime rate and all that sort of stuff that even to this day people would discuss that sort of thing and i think as we move on into the future it's the sort of thing that scarily like with artificial intelligence and other techniques to try and clean up crime in the world i do think those sort of conversations will come back to haunt us but i think it's a bit of a juggling act really because you want the world to be a safe place but you don't want to rid it of so much violence that you can't react with certain angry emotions then at things that do displease you because everybody can't be happy all the time there are several films that explore what it's like to be happy all the time and if you are devoid of all negative emotion you just burn out at the end of the day that's just a simple psychological fact i'm not a psychologist of any kind or merit or anything like that but that's generally my basic understanding of it and i think that's the case with alex in this case he's devoid of all negativity and he's basically become defenseless and helpless well you know david like at the end of the day um I mentioned this a couple of times in different episodes where like I bring up Robin Williams. He's 
you know, like one of my favorite actors, like in my childhood, absolutely bringing a lot of laughter and joy to the world. And next thing we know, um, he committed suicide and we're all shocked because like, how come this guy brought so much joy for all of us, even at our saddest times, he knows how to entertain us through movies and like, you know, cartoons like as Aladdin. Yeah. But all of a sudden he was, he was not happy within himself. And, you know, like we humans, we have the right to shut down at times, you know, like we're not like a machine that continues to, to be on and on and on at the yeah. end of the day, you know, machine will shut down. And, you know, like you mentioned, it's burnout. You don't want to burn yourself to death. And that's mm. the idea with the scene when Alex came back home, this is, this is the, 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 the genius mass, like, like the masterpiece of Kubrick. And of course, Burgess, because we actually felt bad for Alex, for Alex specifically. If you watch, like as audience, we watch what Alex did with his droops. Next thing you know, you tell yourself, did I actually feel bad for Alex? Because you notice, David, he was crying in that scene. But here's the thing. This is what really, really messed up. The one time he cried when he found out his snake died. Can you imagine that? Yeah. The snake, not his clothes, but he was crying over a snake. And as kids, we always say that, oh, a snake symbolizes evil because in the movie said so. So imagine if you take that concept with Alex crying over it. Mm. What does it say about Alex? I think it's the loss of all evil within him. And and that's not necessarily like, like I keep saying. I think in the case of Alex, it's not good in some respects because he, as a person, his negative vibes that he gave out the ultra violence that was him as a person so to take that away take away the serpent you are taking away his soul essentially that is essentially what you're doing in this scenario and that's what happens to him he is soulless and he's pathetic oh i didn't even think of it that way yeah that's actually a pretty interesting concept another factor in that scene is that in a way we understood why alex didn't like his parents mm. because when he got arrested they easily have no problem for the cost to take all of his like belongings and having Joe to come over to rent. Like the, the guy's name is Joe renting yeah. at Alex, Alex's parents' place. Now we understand why Alex has some sort of resentment towards his parents from mm -hmm. that specific scene. It was painful, the most painful scene for Alex. But for us, we understand why Alex has that, I guess, like hate or like ignorance towards his parents. It was actually beautifully executed as a story, mm -hmm. but the way Kubrick presented, especially with, you know, Alex crying, he's not being himself. And if you notice, David, the second half has less colors compared to the first half. Yeah, I did. It's funny, actually, you should mention that because that is actually something in my notes, actually, funnily enough. It's a very exactly. muted, muted color palette for the second half of the film. And it's very, you know, you think Clockwork Orange as a whole is a gritty film, but the most colorful aspects of the film are presented at the beginning. And even, and this sort of links on to my next sort of point really, is that we revisit parts from the first half of the movie. We get to see, so obviously we don't see anything from the cat lady because she gets killed. She is murdered by Alex, even though he profanes that he's he hasn't murdered her and that she's still alive. That sort of that's dealt with obviously when he first goes into prison. Like he gets punished, he gets sent to prison for killing the cat lady. That's one punishment. Then obviously the Ludovico technique kicks in and he all his violent tendencies are taken away and he becomes this pathetic little mess with no serpent for soul. He's just left there 
and as we go through the rest of the film we revisit these key moments then that were so pivotal in the opening of the film and we see kind of a payoff in a way sort of a payback then where revenge is exacted on Alex Alex gets a taste of his own medicine and it really kind of just proves that everybody is just as violent as each other really to be honest with you because of the fact that you don't actually you think oh they're helpless poor people of everyday life they're just you know and they got interrupted their lives were disrupted by Alex the large and his droogs their lives have been wrecked and ruined by these youths but then they themselves turn into that the whole turn of events like it's flipped on its head the narrative is flipped on its head you think that everyday people are the innocents whereas you discover that they are just as bad as one another that everybody has that darkness in them as i said before everybody has a light everybody has a dark and that is demonstrated in the second half when alex goes through like as it as it was greatest hits shall we say because you know he gets sent to prison as punishment for killing the cat lady but then he gets attacked by the man in the wheelchair with his strong man person bodyguard person i don't know who he is like really biff buff guy uh who's in there who helps detain alex and sort of chuck him about a bit and sort of give him a taste of his own medicine the homeless guy that he beats up at the beginning of the film a load of homeless people beat him up and crowd around him that's payback for then and then because you have that moment that lovely cinematic moment i highlighted last time with the slow motion sequence of Alex basically knocking the droogs about and then falling into the, I think it's the part of the Thames, I want to say, in London, and knocks them into the water. And the droogs themselves, they come back, at least two of them anyway, they come back and they are police officers and they've matured, so to speak, and they've got actual jobs and they've moved on from their droog-like ways. But then because they realised that they were led off the straight and narrow by Alex and they see how far Alex has fallen, they decide to sort of get their own back on their former leader because they're no longer under his control so you know the second half of the film really is just a a big massive cycle of repeating what we've just seen but in reverse so we're turning everything on its head payback from all those people who suffered under alex's reign and you know sort of going back to the sort of the main point of this he is ultimately crippled to the core of his own humanity really he's a shell of what he used to be then shall we say What's interesting about the uh, aftermath uh, from the house scene in the book, he actually was, uh, he went to the library. So he wants to learn how to commit suicide. What uh, in the book says, but in the movie, we saw how he was getting attacked by the homeless, especially uh, with the guy who uh, uh, with the drugs beat up in the intro. And he was saved by the two cops. And that would be basically Georgie and Dim. Hmm. Now, uh, David, this is the last minute I just found out after re-watching it, after how many times, I can't even remember. Georgie, basically, in uh, his uh, like in his suit, his officer number is 665. Now, Dim's officer number is 667. Now, when they're carrying Alex so they can beat the hell out of him in that water and stuff, what does that make Alex's number? I mean, I, I mean process of, elim- of elimination, it surely should be. 666 which means obviously like we say we link this back to the whole devil incarnate kind of stuff that's going on here you know if the serpent is a symbol of his soul then if he is the devil incarnate because like crowley would be he is a serpent he is the devil because his number would be 666 because he's in the middle of the two of them because that is the number that comes numerically so you know i mean it could be a coincidence it could not be but i i i 
not gonna lie i didn't actually think of that i that's something i've only just sort of come to know now now you've made me realize that but yeah it all does sort of lock into place as it were as you mentioned david great minds think alike because i mentioned <laughs> in my podcast i mentioned um about the movie crow uh the episode called peace from vengeance yeah i mentioned how like basically uh in, in that movie the crow always with um the character eric draven i'm not gonna go much with the movie but basically the symbolism of the crow in general is it considered peace and uh, not, not peace my bad it's considered change especially like crow comes in like in the graveyards, graveyards, it's basically represented the change of the state of life or death. Yeah. So if one would basically symbolize a certain animal like the crow, then one simply would symbolize the the meaning behind any animal, like the snake we mentioned about, like you know being evil, or like whenever they see a lion, that means it's bravery, it means courageness, or whenever they see an eagle. It means glory. So, you know, people would depict different analysis when it comes to animals. So I just want to point that out. Uh, David, you mentioned about after the, uh, the attack from Georgie and Dim, we proceed to basically the old man and the muscle guy, which, yeah. fun fact, the muscle guy is actually Darth Vader. Oh, it is, isn't it? Oh, wait, no. It I, is, yeah. I, I've read, no, no, wait, actually, do you know what? I don't know why I didn't remember that. But I just, like, the minute you said it, I was like, wait a second, I did read that. I do know that. That's something I completely, <laughs> I forgot for a brief second. But yeah, it is, it's Darth Vader. And I was just like, like, when I originally found that out, like, which I will admit was not that long ago, because, you know, in preparation for this, I looked up a few, like, crazy facts to do with the Clock of Orange. I was like, whoa. Like mind blown, mind blown. It is the dark side is carrying a member of the dark side. <laughs> yes. Oh, could you? I mean, slightly off topic, but like, there's that cartoon animation where like you get the gladiator gladiator ring of like all the villains, all the heroes, and all the villains in their own little amphitheaters, and they fight to the death. Like, I think Alex Delarge is featured in that. At least I think at one point. But like, that's like a Freddy Krueger, Jason style movie that. Like if New Line Cinema made a Clockwork Orange <laughs> and they've made that stuff, I could imagine, I could imagine that being a thing, you know, Darth Vader versus Alex Delage. Who will win? Who will drink the last glass of milk? Who knows? Find out on this next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, David, um, I guess we, we should uh, really focus on the, this like the, the moments after Alex went to that same house because things have the table flipped, not just for yeah. Alex, but for the old man. Linking on finishing off what you were saying about the mooted lights so of the colors, the lack of color compared to the first part, because violence is crazy and wild and colorful. Like, it's like people say rude language. They, some people at least, at least over here in the UK, we describe it as colorful language. Yeah. So, Ultraviolence is a colorful practice. And when you get to obviously the lack of violence in Alex, it, it creates a really nice, interesting contrast in tone because obviously, like I said before, the people are seeking sort of vengeance for what Alex did to them before, but the color palette is completely different. And the scene in, in question, the may the scene with Darth Vader, <laughs> the scene with the old man in nice. the in the wheelchair. He's wheelchair bound and he's lost his wife because, but she. I think it transpires that she killed herself after 
the events like because she couldn't cope because of the mental scars that had been placed upon her because of the effects of Alex and the Droog's visit. He himself has gone a little bit crazed as well, but not he, like he's stuck around. And in a way, yeah, that whole the whole sequence, really, because we're introduced to this in the first part, this very modern house, very futuristic in terms of like for the time anyway because you know it's very modern then should we say like loads of mirrors in the hallway and lots of bookshelves done very artistically and aesthetically pleasing and you don't notice that as much in this second half there's not much really it's very muted the the color palette is muted the everything is very contained and we focus much more on the characters and the facial expressions themselves like stanley kubrick loves doing the thing where he zooms in or zooms out from a character's face so we get at the beginning of the film we get the zoom out from alex's eyes and then we peer back to see the rest of the droogs and their facial expressions we do the same where we zoom into jack torrance's face in the shining we and danny as well in the shining as well you know it's a very classic kubrick thing to focus and zone in on these human emotions and on their faces and i think that that's what stanley kubrick does without doing too much of the zooming I think he manages to capture the human side of it and really focus on the performances of the actors then. I know Stanley Kubrick famously didn't really get on with the actors or a lot of the actors he worked with because he was very demanding of what he wanted. But at the same time, I do. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> I mean, Shelley Duvall, we've already discussed this, was just one of many. Oh, God. One of I many. I feel bad for her. Yeah, just so many instances. But I think you can easily say that the acting was the the characters themselves were the focus whereas we focus on in the first half we're looking at the look of kubrick's film like you think about i know the shining came after this but you and you've got barry Lyndon that comes slightly after this as well you experience the production design of a kubrick film in the first half you see everything it looks so opulent and so cool and edgy for like the 70s anyway and then you go to this next part is you focus on you see Alex in this dimly lit bathroom where he's just sort of sat there alone, cold and isolated. I, I don't know. Explain to us about what you would think about that scene in particular. What stands out to you? Uh, this is just going to be like a, an opinion, first of all. Uh, whenever there's a bathroom scene when it comes to Kubrick movies, things tend to get scarier. Have you noticed that? Like, yeah. Not just the cockroach, orange, but the shining. Full metal jacket. Yeah. He has something with the bathrooms. I don't know why. Yeah, he has a bit of a thing um, for bathrooms, I think. But yeah, continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, I mean, like with my opinion, there's also there's just some linkage. Whenever there's a, like a bathroom scene with Kubrick, that means something is about to happen and it's going to change the entire story or like the remaining parts of the story. Mm. Because in the bathroom scene, you know, Alex seems to be, you know, comfortable because the way the old man and the big guy, or I mean, Darth Vader... Um, took care of him, you know, gave him mucose and he's, you know, taking a bath. He seems to be very happy. But when he's happy, he sings that one song that came out of his head, which is the same song that he sung in the same house a couple of years ago before he got into prison. I don't know why, but this got to the point where like, I just want to ask you, David, why in his mind would he sing Singing in the Rain? I think... There's so many things you can read into it, but personally, this is just my opinion. I think because he's been so, at this point in the film, he's physically and above all mentally worn out. 
he doesn't know what's right and wrong anymore. He can't like he can't do what he used to do. But even then, we're trying to do good. He just gets you know battered by every other Tom, Dick, and Harry and homeless person here and there. You know because of what he did. I I just think that at this point he's so mentally drawn. It's a very strange loophole in the Ludovico technique because he committed a violent act with that song. He's still able to hum it, but then you could argue that he's humming it, not singing it. So if he sung it. Would he be violently sick because of that? Because he actually sang it whilst doing that. But at the same time, he wasn't played singing in the rain during the technique. He was played Beethoven during the technique. So he's more likely to react to that than singing in the rain. I think because he's so mentally... To answer answer your question, really, he's mentally sort of destroyed and broken that I think his memory is going back to something, a simpler time. And it's something that, even though he he's remembering it, but at the same time not remembering it, he's sort of his mind is at rest, and he's I don't it's letting him sing or so hum the song because it's a kind of release because it's going back into what he he used to do, but without actually doing it. So in a way, it's a way of his mind coping and relaxing in a way you could argue. That's my opinion, but like at the same time, he's very much still confined. And and also it's his undoing at the end of the day, because, you know, if he hadn't have hummed that song, <laughs> the guy wouldn't have known, which is a bit strange, actually, considering, you know, I know he was wearing different clothes and he had the eye makeup on, but surely it wasn't that hard to notice that Alex looks exactly the same, like as the guy who beat you up and caused your wife so, so much distress that she killed herself in the end. You know, you'd think you'd remember a face like that. Like, he rem- but it's the fact that, sound is the thing that brings on the memory for the old man so i I don't know it's it's complicated i i don't really know which way to go with that personally what would you say why would you think he sung that song in particular what made him do that shall we say do you think it's because of his mental state or do you think some other reason well it's a little bit of a mix you see like you can't think of beethoven anymore because like what happened with the ludovico technique yeah exactly Um, in the first sequence of singing in the rain in the movie he did not really do much of ultra violence just either before or after but in the middle he was just singing so whenever he when he sang like in the home invasion he was just like dancing and you know hits uh, at times and then he was like cutting with scissors but that's it but he didn't really do any attack in the middle of the song yeah so for yeah. him singing it it's not a problem and at the same time it's like maybe that song is what makes Alex go all happy, especially in the home invasion. Because the, remember we, we mentioned in part one where like Kubrick wanted to make this scene less stiffy. So he wanted to add a nice, happy song. Yeah. So when Alex sings a happy song, it actually makes him happy regardless of what situation. He would even sing it if he's walking in the streets, singing in the rain, or like when he's basically sleeping, singing, singing in the rain, but he cannot think of Beethoven. Mm. So I think that's why. Because yeah. that's the only song he can think of because the rest, he just listens to Beethoven. Yeah, it's like a little mini coping, coping mechanism, then, shall we say, I suppose, exactly. to get over that. And fun little fact, Take 97 listeners, if you're just listening to this randomly and you haven't listened to part one, shame on you. <laughs> no, but seriously, there is a yeah. fun fact which we mentioned in part one, uh, which I will bring up again. I still can't believe that Ace discovered this. I can't believe that... <laughs> The reason why it's singing in the rain and it's not any other pop song or a song from a musical or anything like that is all is because Stanley Kubrick was like, oh, do you know any songs to Malcolm McDowell? And he only knows singing in the rain. He did not know any anything else. 
the first thing that popped into his head was singing in the rain and that is the one that it was so you know if the only song he ever knew was i i don't know diamonds are a girl's best friend not that it would be but if it was <laughs> that would be the song that he sang but the fact that it was you know that's the only song he knew that's the reason why it's singing in the rain it's not because stanley kubrick chose it it's purely because malcolm mcdowell didn't have a clue about any other popular music or any other songs to comfortably perform them in this distressing scene in the home invasion um but yeah uh, just a quick little point that I don't really think that you should mix Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend with A Clockwork Orange. I think that could end up being an entirely different movie, but that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> I think it will give us the what the F moments. Yeah, absolutely. That song. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many songs to be fair he could have done, but yeah, just ending on that. Malcolm McDowell, we appreciate you. And a little sort of little thing. Yeah. Um, Ace sent me a message actually not long before we recorded this. In 2021, uh, the man himself, Malcolm McDowell, he turned 78 this year in the 50th year of A Clockwork Orange. And there's a really cool yeah, picture yeah. of him dressed up as Alex Delage. And I will probably post this on our Instagram as well and our stories and such to show you guys because honestly, it's so cool that he dressed up like the character. And he's still, even though he's much older, he still looks, you know, just as cutting edge and cool as he did in the original in the 70s. That's our Chelovic right there. Yeah. That's not set for anyone who uh, did not understand. You know, Clockwork Orange people was a... (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Another thing, David, you mentioned like how Kubrick really did not like getting along with his cast just because like he wants to bring the characters to life. But the relationship between him and Malcolm McDowell was so real that Malcolm thought that they were actually like best of friends. Yeah, this is the thing actually. And this is what sort of, if anybody like is a collector of um, home physical media, just as much as I am, or is just a Kubrick fanatic in general, there is the, I think, is it a documentary? I haven't watched it for ages, but it's Oh Lucky Malcolm, that one, that film, which was made. And if you watch that, you sort of get like a gist of uh, like, the insights into Malcolm McDowell, the man. That is something that has been said time and time again. Like the relationship between Kubrick and Jack Nicholson was something. But then on the other hand, the relationship between Malcolm McDowell and Kubrick was something else entirely. Yeah, absolutely. It was very strange. Like you hear some good stuff about Kubrick because, like, you know, from Malcolm and even like Tom Cruise, like he didn't have a problem with, or like the, the cast of Full Metal Jackets, yeah, well, some of them at least. But then you you hear what happened in The Shining, specifically from Shelley Duvall. It's tragic. It it sucks what happened to her. But because of him, he brought like her character to life. There was this piece of I I can't remember the name of the documentary, but Kubrick really pissed off Shelley to the point like he made me hate him. Like he was telling her like you should not do this. Like, it looks <laughs> fake. Your acting is fake. I'm like, why would you say that to a woman crying her like lungs out, giving him. Uh, her piece of hair as like a a token of appreciation. But with uh, Malcolm, it's actually so real until the movie ended. And apparently Stanley Kubrick haven't reached out to uh, Malcolm since. No, exactly. To sort of bring us back to A Clockwork Orange, just sort of one little, little minor point I wanted to bring up. We talk about the film about being uh, about the corruption of governments and such like that. It essentially looks, I wanted to ask you, like I think so, it looks at government U-turns 
personified in the way that the technique, so Ludovico technique was reversed, thus depicting politicians going back on their policies and promises and such. What would you say about that? What would you sort of read into the whole government U-turns? Because by the end of the film, we get this aspect of Alex being sort of praised as the poster boy once again, but for being a return to normality out of the Ludovico technique. What would you say about that particular aspect of the film the thematics of it and the fact that it shows you know it really is a mirror towards the society of the time and it still stands up to that now being you know government policies being overturned and u-turns being made because oh they realize oh we've gone too far we've taken too much from what we wanted to do what would you say about that Ace? i love when you ask that question david because that specific, I guess, like the, like the finale of, of the, um, the movie, you notice how like when the minister was feeding him, Alex was enjoying it to the point where like he was like chewing like pridefully and he's expecting the minister to basically like feed him. In that specific finale, what I can learn from that moment is that Alex had the government in his hands. If he decides to basically expose the government, he will make the government look bad. But if you notice how like the ministers basically like trying to give him like, you know, compensation stuff, you know, like job and pay and all that stuff, just so he can make Alex quiet. It just to show how government is corrupted as much as Alex. A fun fact, David, notice in that scene with the minister, his background is dark and Alex is light. Have you noticed that? It did indeed. It kind of makes the whole thing, the whole scenario seem a bit pointless, if you ask me, like you get this essence of a cyclic nature, like an experiment gone wrong. They realize that they've gone too far. And you've got like you just say the symbolism in terms of the light and the dark, and you've got him all lit up and in front of the cameras and such right at the end of the film with all these photographers and journalists. It's a great testament to Stanley Kubrick as plotting in that political subtext there, because, you know, with The Shining, you had mythical based stuff and lots of people read into them. We've discussed that great length already. But then you get the likes of Full Metal Jacket being about war and that topic. And also the same with Paths of Glory as an earlier example of anti-war films whereas this is very much the analysis of corruption within a government body and we see that darkness like i say i'm going to bring this back to my point at the beginning without violence and darkness humanity is lost completely one cannot exist without the other and in a way it kind of you can read into it that the government is slightly going off topic a little bit but like you can read into it that the government in A Clockwork Orange cannot exist without the ultraviolence. They need something to fight against. They need an antagonist. Both of them need an antagonist to fight against because without one or the other, you cannot really get that single debate, really, because otherwise everything would just be one way and it would be like a drone factory of nothing unique and nothing no arguments for and against. I, and Kubrick presents this interesting argument that you know it makes me confused. I'm sure it creates lots of debate with you as well. I just, I don't know what else to say, really. It's sort of really confusing, but interesting piece of cinema. It's not my favorite Kubrick film by all means. It's the one that creates the most interest, I think. Like I have fun with The Shining. I have fun with Metal Jacket in some respects. I mean, fun in quotes in watching them. But I think this is the one that really sort of makes me think a lot. 
uh, would you so what would you say would you agree with that is this the more sort of hardcore Kubrick film then at the end of the day I mean compared with the rest of the movies I absolutely agree with you the second place it would be Eyes Wide Shut just a point fact with the Clockwork Orange um, when it comes to being Kubrick here's the thing Kubrick Kubrick has the intentions of not following the society. He believes that fitting in is overrated, which I absolutely agree. Quentin Tarantino mentioned uh, in the Joe Rogan podcast, basically how like the 70s and the 80s were like the worst times of movie making just because there was cancel culture. And A Clockwork Orange was in 1971. That was the beginning of the 70s. And David, we mentioned, especially like in part one, that he received backlash from the community because of Clockwork Orange. So when a Clockwork Orange was, you know, released and it got like all that ban, especially in the UK, it's because of a cancel culture. But Kubrick didn't follow that. The reason we call his movies Kubrickian, because like, at least from my understanding and, and from our discussion stuff, we believe that, you know, the term Kubrickian means not following what the society wants to have. What do you think? I absolutely agree. Couldn't agree anymore. Like Kubrickian is the word that you use when you say you go against everything that's normal i know wes anderson makes a big thing out of his symmetry based stuff in his filmmaking but he wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't for kubrick i know the way wes anderson does things is very unique to him but one point perspective like other filmmakers have done one point perspective before kubrick has learned from actual painters and other photographers when he began as a photographer as well first and foremost but yes he's inspired by that but at the same time he uses the one point perspective he uses that stylization in his cinematography to really change people's opinions of what cinema can be it is a painting in moving image form and to wrap things up in a way coming back to ludwig van beethoven Ludwig, we we love the fact that classical music in a Kubrick film is used. It sort of shows the antithesis of popular culture in the form of novels and adaptations. So Kubrick did a lot of adaptations. So, you know, you get Clockwork Orange and The Shining, for instance, and Lolita, these dark pieces of literature that are sort of pop culture in their own respect because they're out there in the public eye. And obviously books were much more of a bigger thing in the 20th century, even just as even though they are now in the 21st century, still to a lot of people, they were in the 20th century, just as much as cinema was a rival against each other. And I think by adding classical music like Ludwig van, we get and also in 2001 Space Odyssey or the classical music in that it really does create this antithesis of pop culture and scientific or theological ideas and thoughts and feelings about the world into one massive combination. It's a massive, Kubrickian is a big word, which we can get into in another episode, I think, altogether. But Kubrickian is the antithesis of experimental artistic greatness in some respects. Uh, Some people would argue not. Some people would say other people have done better. But lots of people do respect Kubrick for what he did for cinema and the way that he used the different tools in cinema and the combinations to bring out these strange, odd stories. Like Eyes Wide Shut is an odd story, for instance. Clockwork Orange is seen as a very odd film as well, but they are intriguing to the human mind. That's all I can really say on it, really. Wonderful stuff, David. Like. You really reminded me of the quote that you mentioned uh, to me back when we did The Shining, Mm. um, which was a quote, uh, I'm not so sure if it was from Steven Spielberg, but you mentioned how everyone is standing in the shoulders of Stanley Kubrick. And you cannot deny that. 
you know, I one time I was arguing with my brother, not say arguing, but, you know, we're just talking like how he despises Kubrick because 2001 A Space Odyssey. Then again, I wouldn't either. But, you know, we we're talking and it was like as much as people would hate him, no one would deny what he did for the film community because we're seeing, you know, steady cam shots. We're seeing more of like the symmetrical shots, like what we see in Wes Anderson. We're seeing a lot of Kubrickians, like with Quentin Tarantino, with his depictions of violence in his movies. A lot of things have changed because of Kubrick. Even his method of research when it comes to movies, like Kubrick went hard when it comes to doing his research. Like imagine, David, if we watched his Napoleon after two years of extensive research. I mean, that would have just been, been so good. So good. The greatest movie of all time. It yeah. would have been the greatest movie of all time. I feel so like the amount comes... of research would have been so, like, it would have been so epic. Absolutely. Be because of his technique when it comes to movie making, research, when it comes to screenwriting, or even, like, cast and crew, people learn from him. And because of Stanley Kubrick, things have gotten more unique from different directors and rise of different directors as well. I can go on for hours and hours, yeah. but like, and we have to save that for later. We do indeed. And I just sort of want to wrap things up, really. So I found this quote actually by so the famous film review god, as it were, some people would call him, the late Roger Ebert, who had lots of opinions about various films. And A Clockwork Orange was one of them that he reviewed back in 1972. And he there's an interesting quote, which I found actually the opening of his review. I just thought I'd read this for you guys, for listeners, for Ace as well. So he described A Clockwork Orange as... And he rated this as a two-star movie as well. Two stars out of, I can't remember, I think it might be five that he did his reviews out of, but two stars he rated it as. And he quoted uh, A Clockwork Orange saying that it was an ideological mess, a paranoid right-wing fantasy masquerading as an Orwellian warning. Now, I just wanted to, before we sort of wrap up, wanted to get your thoughts on that particular opinion, Ace. What, what would you say in response to that? I mean, if you say that now, it's considered a compliment. But you say that before, that is like an insult. As we mentioned, it's like a culture shift. Like when you hear about like a paranoid mess, I'm like, okay, that means it tripped you over, which means it's a good movie. That's what I would say. Because of the culture shift, I'm like, so you're saying it's a good movie. And ultimately, the influence of A Clockwork Orange on, like, there's been parodies of this film to death, especially the opening of the film, which we have emulated on these podcasts we have earlier on. One little interesting thing, which I thought was, I haven't seen this film, but something I read about the other day was just really was like, what the, what is going on? The new Space Jam film, Space Jam A New Legacy, the 2021 film with LeBron James in it. You're going to think, what the hell am I on about right now? In the background, in the crowd scenes, apparently, of so like i said i haven't seen this film but in the crowd scenes you do get to see all these like warner brothers properties and apparently the droogs are featured now while space jamming new legacy yeah no the droogs what yeah it's, it's, it's bizarre I, I haven't seen the film but i've just read about this because apparently warner brothers because obviously it's a warner brothers thing loads of properties of warner brothers have been placed into this arena to watch the basketball game between the toons and the goons and you know, whilst I don't rate Space Jam as like a big, like the original one is a nostalgia trip for me personally, because I've watched it when I was younger and I haven't oh, seen this course. one. But I think in terms of A Clockwork Orange, you know, it just shows the fact that they make a little cameo in the background of something. 
I know it's because it's Warner Brothers spamming you with Warner Brothers stuff, but like it really does show that they are proud to say that that is one of their pieces of cinema that they released under their name. That is a testament to Stanley Kubrick as a director that whilst it's a cheap cameo, it's a bit rubbish. It's not the best film to be sort of placed in. The presence of Kubrick is always there. And it's the same with stuff like The Shining, like the presence of The Shining sequence in the Steven Spielberg film Ready Player One. The fact it's used at all is just the fact that the influence of Kubrick on so many. We stand on the shoulders of Kubrick. That's what I said before. I will say it again. And I sound like I love Kubrick so much. I do. You know, he's not my favorite director, but I think at the end of the day, to wrap this up, Roger Ebert, paranoid right wing mess at the time, maybe. I don't know. Now you can see that it is a masterpiece right now. So that's all I have to say really on that. Really, Ace? Just another point fact, like it's also celebrated in Disney, um, mm. the Cockroach Orange uh, with Phineas and Ferb. There's a specific episode where uh, Phineas and Ferb were sent uh, on like a summer camp because they got in trouble from their parents because they found out what they were doing that day. Basically, there's a general it's a mix of Full Metal Jacket, too. I just realized that. Oh, that's cool. Um, trying to make them more humble, make them more serious, but they're just full of creativity. And they put the uh, the concept of the Ludovico technique, like pull, pull, op- opening their eyes and seeing some movies, but it didn't work. But at the end, they stopped being more fun, like, and of course, until the ending, but like in the, in the middle, they stopped be- being more fun. They're more robotic. They can't even touch something cool. Depiction of Ludovico technique, because of that movie, it brought so much influence in Disney as well. Like Disney, yeah. PG, it's amazing. And on that note, guys, this is the end of part two and this two-part podcast collaboration special with me, David Ingram, from Take 97, a film podcast, and Ace from Films Unchained. Boy, oh boy, Ace, I am so glad that we decided to do this. I feel like we've ended on a great high note right now. The right way, I feel, to celebrate 50 years, the golden anniversary of A Clockwork Orange, it truly has been horror show, to say the least. Do you have anything to say to our listeners before we conclude this podcast of epic proportions? Just two things. Uh, first things first uh, and foremost, David, like I'm very glad we're able to do this together. Uh, I'm glad that, you know, like you're like the co-narrator of, of this pod series. I'm glad we did this when it comes to Stanley Kubrick's and A Clockwork Orange. I'm glad we were able to celebrate the 50 years of ultraviolence uh, when it comes to this movie. And when it comes to talking about Stanley Kubrick and his movies, including this one, as clear as an azure sky of the deepest summer, you can rely on us, Damas and Chelovex, with Ace and David in this two-part series. And with that, that's a wrap on Take 97 and Films Unchained podcast, the film podcast duo that is me, David Ingram, and Ace, a movie fanatic like many people. Thank you very much for listening, guys. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. See you later.